is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast, episode 59, with your hosts, Ray Herto of HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And joining us today is our guest. Tyson Renoso, King Street Properties. Nice, Tyson. It's great, uh, great to have you here. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Friday the 13th. Hey, Mark said it's going to be a great day, so uh, I'm on board. Let's make it happen. Yeah, it's already better than Friday the 6th. I can confirm that. <laughs> yeah, we had to push this back a week. What happened, Mark? Uh, slight mechanical MEP coordination <laughs> blunder that needed to be remedied in the field in an urgent way. So appreciate your flexibility on this one. You're all good? All good, yeah. I think... Uh, Generally, we have these open web trusses on this new project and uh, you get these trusses and it's kind of is what it is. Like there really isn't much modifications that can be made. So uh, you have to get things right ahead of time. And um, we had a couple issues with, uh, with layouts and as they were coming, the first floor was coming off the truck, but uh, shout out to Ross at TE2, previous podcast guest, Ross really helped out and stepped up. Beautiful. But we're here to talk today about life science. Tyson, big buzzword. I feel like everyone is a life science developer now. Do you agree? It's the cool thing to do these days. It is. How long have you been at it? Six, seven years? Yeah, about six years now uh, at King Street, formerly at Suffolk Construction. Uh, spent some, some time there with you, Mark, in the trenches. Yeah. Still recovering. Uh, exactly. Prior <laughs> to my experience at King Street, worked in construction for about six years at Suffolk. What was the adjustment like going from the GC side uh, onto the development and specifically like life science, which is a specialty way unto itself? You're right. There were kind of two big transitions, learning the development side of the business and then also learning a new asset type. My experience at Suffolk was a lot more commercially focused on high-rise residential and education projects, some government work. Never had done life science before. So what I'd say is the, the adjustment to life science was probably the quicker and the easier one, immersed into the full world of development. Um, I'm still doing that. That's a lifelong process. So still going through that transition. I feel that life science, as Mark said, is, is like the newest buzzword in the commercial space. You know, any broker, commercial broker that I, I've spoken to or any bigger developer is like, life science is the new thing to build and all these buildings, like we're shifting away from X, Y, Z and everyone's building life sciences now. Is it just like, why is there so much demand? And can you define life science? I feel like it's a pretty broad term. Yeah. So to define life science, it's uh, another word that gets commonly used is biotech. So Mm -hmm. companies that are performing typically wet lab research in their spaces there is a, a sub-asset class in real estate called R&D, research and development space. And that's, I classify more of that as, as dry lab or um, kind of open bay research space. Like you might see a robotics company in R&D space, but lab space and bio, either lab, biotech, or life science is typically biotech companies that have wet lab research happening in their space. So it's a combination of research space and office space. All these buildings have both components because the scientists need somewhere to sit. So hmm. there's an office that's uh, accessory to the research space. So is it a lot like the uh, 
chemistry labs from high school with like the eyewash station and the centrifuge and pretty much exactly. pretty much exactly. the same as my ninth grade. The, the, the lab technology has not changed a lot since uh, your middle school chemistry class. So the, uh, this phase would look a lot like that. Um, yeah. Although these companies spend a lot more money on their research space than the high schools or middle schools do on the chemistry lab space. Yeah, your mechanicals in these projects must be insane. They are. And, and that's one of the major differentiators between a, a life science building and an office building is the mechanical infrastructure um, is a much bigger uh, component of the cost of building these buildings. And it also creates it, really the, 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 the operators and the developers who build these buildings have a very specialty focus and experience in these robust types types of facilities, and there's other features of these buildings that differentiate them as well. We can we we can get into that detail if you'd like, but the mechanicals are one of the biggest. So, just to get right to it, instead of uh, warming you up anymore, what does it cost to build such a space? Can you give us like a range on price per foot? This can't be your typical like two twenty a foot residential uh, stick frame. Yeah. So, are we talking ground up construction or the tenant fit out part? Start with ground up. So. All land use, land cost, and, and soft costs, all that stuff aside, but just purely hard costs. Typically, the non-union lab building in the suburbs of Boston, anywhere from two hundred and fifty to two hundred seventy-five dollars a square foot, and that's exclusive of parking. Mm-hmm. So, if there's an underground parking or structured parking that's part of that project, that would be in addition to that cost. Huh. It's less than that's actually that's less true. than I thought. Yeah, well, that's, that's, really the, that's in the suburbs. That's non-union, non-union. Okay. Yeah, exactly. What do you do? You push like five hundred a foot in the city. In a union environment, a lab building could cost anywhere from four hundred to five hundred dollars a square foot. Uh, wow. Hard cost, exclusive of parking. Is being exclusive of parking a common consideration? It is in in terms Ray, of just comparing projects, apples to apples. We typically, when we talk about costs, we typically remove the parking costs when we're comparing what the hard cost is from project to project because we have projects where we're building a new building on a campus where we already have a few buildings and part of the construction of the new building and the new parking is to replace parking for our tenants and our other buildings. And that actually adds more costs over and above just your parking costs for the new building. So we typically try to keep the parking costs aside and be able to compare just the building costs. I would think that a retrofitting an old building to be a lab space must be an absolute nightmare. We have to be very selective. We're very selective about what sorts of, which specific existing assets, existing structures we choose to redevelop. Not every building can be converted to lab. And I think what you're seeing a lot in the marketplace right now is because life science is is such a hot asset class that a lot of uh, office buildings that are that are struggling right now, landlords are con- considering converting those to, to life science. But physically, most of these office buildings actually don't work as lab buildings. Now, some of them will still get converted and landlords will try to lease that space, but they're significantly challenged from a mechanical perspective, uh, floor to floor heights, the structural capacity of those buildings, the plumbing systems, the electrical systems. So typically we've the conversions that we've done in our past have been buildings that are already used for life science that we've either uh, converted a portion of the building or, or converted the building really to multi-tenant is what we like to do by 
former user owner occupied life science buildings and then multi-tenant those buildings. Now our life from a life sciences or infrastructure perspective, would you prefer to have in a in a shared or mixed use building with other tenants? Would you prefer to have the lab space at a lower floor or a higher floor? Is there a preference? You'll find lab buildings uh, are shorter structures typically than office buildings, and there's a reason for that. Number one is distribution of mechanical systems. So as we spoke about earlier, significant duct work needs to be run to these floors to provide the air changes that these, these spaces need. And as you get a building taller and as a building gets taller and taller, it's harder to, to provide that distribution vertically throughout the building without um, making the building very inefficient from a floor plate perspective and having huge mechanical shafts running through the floor. So that's one reason. And then the other reason is the building code uh, restricts the amount of hazardous and flammable chemicals that can be stored in a building. And the higher and higher you go up in that up in the building, the less and less is allowable to be stored. So the taller a lab building is, the more uh, heavy, intensive chemical use space is on the lower floors. Are you essentially building like a hospital? Like it seems like. More like complicated. Very, even more complicated? Maybe comparable to a surgery suite, if I was just making up an answer, because I really have no idea. But <laughs> <laughs> I think it's very similar to a hospital. Hospitals typically have very compartmentalized space, um, whereas I think you'll, you're finding a lot more of, of lab space. Lab buildings these days are traditionally the, the office space is an open concept and the lab space is more of an open concept. And you always have the the outliers that uh, the space gets more chopped up and it's more segmented, but hospitals are, are, are more compartmentalized space and, and they're very specialized space as well. There's high, quite a bit of high hazard space in hospitals, NMR machines and various things that are also in lab buildings, but there are some differences, but on, on the whole, they are similar. So we talked hard costs on uh, construction and, and, and fit outs. How about once you're done building, what, what are you guys looking for for a finished product? What are some typical, I don't know if you're, you're releasing this space or if it's, if it's price per foot on a, on a sales basis, but how do you guys typically handle that? We'll uh, underwrite our projects to a return on cost. And mm-hmm. that return on cost depends on specifically where that project is located. And it's a function, as you guys know, of the, of the exit cap rate as well. What, what, what we think the building will be worth once it's fully leased and we take it to the market to sell, that would inform our, our return on cost going into it. In terms of lease rates, yes, we're, we're very much focused on that as we're developing these projects. And just to give you guys some context as to what current rates are in the marketplace, in East Cambridge, which is really the hub of life science in this market, everything stems from East Cambridge. That's really the, the epicenter of life science. Rents now are exceeding $100 a square foot, triple net. I heard, I think last week, there was a letter of intent signed at $110 a square foot. So the lab rents in this market trend off of what's happening in Kendall Square. And from, from there, probably, you know, the, there's a lot of activity happening in the seaport, a lot of activity in the Fenway. There's a lot of activity in West Cambridge and then quite a bit in the suburbs as well. So as you move out to these, I'll call it uh, not secondary, but non-Kendall locations, rents start to decrease um, as you move to these outer markets. That has to beg the question, obviously location being important, but at that kind of a rate, 
are people, it's crazy that they're still renting. Are people going to be, or companies going to be moving to a buy and own model? Because that's, if it costs, say it costs 500 to build, you know, you'll get that build cost back in five years. So the renting just doesn't make any sense. So I, I just don't understand. Is it just that the companies themselves aren't good at ent- the entitlement process? Is You're that killing Tyson's business model. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a, it's, a, it's a real question. Yeah. They're a good question. So what I'd say is these companies are not focused and they do not want to be focused on the real estate component of their space. They're in business to find treatments for diseases that affect our society. And there's an infinite amount of those, not literally infinite, but there's thousands and thousands of diseases out there to be cured. And these companies are focused on that as their mission. And owning real estate, we've found, is traditionally not an important and and a high priority for them. If anything, they don't want to have that uh, on their balance sheet because they'd rather have that cash for their research operations. The other consideration is these companies don't know they need the space they need typically until six to eight months before they need to be occupying that space. So if you just think about the traditional timeline to build a building or even build out a tenant improvement space, that's well beyond that six to eight month time frame. So they would much rather be in a position of going out into the market and finding the space they need and acting quickly to, to secure that space rather than planning for a long timeline to build. So that would mean that most of the product you're putting out is a spec. In other words, you're not building to, to suit suite. That's, that's correct. And, and, you know, our philosophy is to be successful in this business and life science development business. You have to build on spec because uh, if you wait for a tenant commitment, there's always a chance that that tenant will come along and, mm-hmm. you know, they'll, they'll, they'll ask, they'll sign at least two years in advance of leasing, of moving into the space. But that's the, that's the exception and not the rule. And so we always build spec or convert buildings on spec to have inventory available. So how, how hot is the market right now? So if you're building the spec and you, are you getting these spaces or buildings leased up prior to getting your CO or are you having to market them? What's that kind of timeline look like? Two out of the last three projects we completed spec lab buildings, ground up spec lab buildings have been fully leased prior to certificate of occupancy of the base building. The tenant improvement time, tenant improvement build out time lags a little bit from certificate of occupancy, but the buildings have been fully committed prior to delivery. And that's not atypical in this market. As more and more inventory gets built, there'll be you know, some, some of that will, will not, you know, some buildings will not have that success, but buildings in prime locations continue to show significant pre-leasing activity. It's crazy. How has COVID affected your business? COVID has actually provided quite a boost to the life science industry, which indirectly has uh, benefited us. The tenant activity in the market has been, uh, has increased since COVID. We actually, we had a couple large lease transactions that were uh, pending leases to get signed once COVID happened in mid-March. And we weren't sure if those were going to close, um, just given the uncertainty in the world. And all three of the transactions pushed along like nothing had happened and the leases got signed. Mm. And then immediately after that, we started to see tenant activity pick up. And if you take a step back and think about it, it, it makes sense because uh, I think the whole world is now realizing this industry is what's going to pull us out of the crisis we're in. And it's only 
shed more light on it and, and heighten the importance of life science research. A lot of money flooding the market. Yes. If you, if you track IPOs, uh, there's been a record number of IPOs in the life science market this year as compared to years past. We still have two months to go. We're already, we've already exceeded the high water mark for any year in the past. So what goes into the base build? So you obviously don't know what every specific tenant or potential tenant would want. And if you're spec building, there's obviously something you have to put into the building just as kind of your base. I'm assuming it's a lot of HVAC, uh, a lot of plumbing, that sort of thing. And then how do you retrofit if somebody comes in with these really crazy spec requirements or does that just not happen? Yeah, so to answer your first question, the base building is, think of an office building core and shelves. It's similar to that. It's uh, it's all the site improvements. It's the structure of the building. It's the mechanical, electrical, plumbing systems. But in lab buildings, as we discussed earlier, those MEP systems are a lot more robust and, and more expensive. The elevators are built as part of the base building. The lobby, you know, that's finished space. And then the tenant space is left, as, is left in shell condition. And it's really left in a condition of plug and play for the tenant to come in and do their improvements. So we typically build our buildings to accommodate 90 to 95% of the market, the tenant market in terms of their requirements. And it's again, 90 to 95% of the time tenants come in and there's no further upgrades that are needed to the building in order to accommodate their needs. There's always the exception again to the rule of uh, the tenant coming in and saying, I need to build out uh, a small clean room or I need to build out uh, a pilot plant. These are all specialty requirements or I need to build out a high hazard room. Those specific requirements might mean another uh, supplemental air handler or some additional electrical capacity for the building has to be upgraded. But for the most part, we're able to accommodate a wide range of tenant requirements with what we put into the building. So... How much more difficult is the entitlement process for the life sciences uh, build than just your standard commercial office building and or residential building? Yeah, so so that really depends on the town or the city that the project is located in. Um, Without uh, naming names, there are certain towns and cities that are very well set up for this. And there's other towns and cities that are not well set up for this. Um, you, you find, uh, if you look at the market, you've, you'll find that the lab buildings are clustered in towns that uh, permitting process is streamlined, and it's been the permitting process has been set up to to work well for life science development. And it's not just a permitting issue, but it's also an infrastructure issue as well. In some towns where lab life science is not flourishing, the infrastructure systems are not well designed to, to accommodate life science. So. I would say it works very well in the towns that are are set up for it and not so well in the ones that aren't. Do you feel that you're getting, do you feel that the abutters or you getting, you get a lot more pushback from neighbors um, than you would typically get because they're more concerned about the type of building that's going in? Actually, we find the reverse of that. We find, again, we typically build our projects in towns cities where life science is a known thing, but we find that these buildings are actually less traffic generators. They generate less traffic than a traditional office building. I think people are proud to say that, uh, you know, if you, if you live in a town, you're proud to say that company X, Y, and Z is coming into our town and they're going to cure breast cancer. 
So people, I think, take pride in it. They take more interest in it than a residential project or an office project. So we've actually found the the um, residents of these towns and cities have been very supportive. Typically, there's 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 always a couple that 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 clog up the process and they they are not happy about it. They wouldn't be happy about any project that gets built there. But on the whole, we find that uh, community members are supportive. So you guys have a open position right now within the company. What do you guys look for in a, in a candidate? Is this something that you can train for? Or is this someone who just needs to know the language and have five years experience? What's your track record been bringing on both types of uh, people into the group? It's a great question. So we look for people who have a skill set that can be valuable out of the gates, whether that's construction or design or a legal background or finance background. And that person can come in and be adding value day one, then be learning the other stuff. And so the other key component that, that we look for is people who can be adaptable and who appreciate and thrive in that environment of learning uh, on the fly. Uh, our company is a nimble organization and uh, everybody is a jack of all trades. So we like to find people who can adapt and be utility players with multiple things. You guys all working from home now? We are. Yeah. That's it. We've been doing that since March. Yeah. A little bit of an adjustment. It is. We're getting by. Uh, it's okay. But I think we're definitely losing some efficiency in all being remote and not being in the same office together. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So COVID obviously has increased the demand, but what's going to happen when a vaccine, whether it's Pfizer's or somebody else's comes out and life does go back to whatever the new, the next new normal will be? Do you think that life sciences will still have as much demand? Do you think that things will still never really slow down because life science just in general continues to mature and we're always trying to solve more diseases and, and cure things? I guess... Yeah, what's going to happen when we all go back? And do you think we're all going to go back into the office? <laughs> <laughs> to answer your first question, I'd say it's more the latter. I think we're, COVID has been a, a big boost to the life science industry. But when there is a vaccine found or discovered <clears throat> and commercialized and distributed to the wider population, life science is going to continue to grow. COVID is only one of thousands of diseases and infections that uh, these companies are researching therapies for. So there is bound to be some, uh, you know, some companies that are you know, racing against Pfizer and Moderna who don't win that race and that activity could slow down. But there's so many other diseases that companies are working on, working on cures for that we don't foresee the, the business slowing down, the industry slowing down. And then working from home, um, what's interesting about life science space is uh, these companies have to have some population, some, some portion of their population working in their space at all times to keep their research running. There is always the option that some of these companies pursue to use contract research organizations. So they're, they're farming out their research to a third party, but that has its disadvantages. These companies typically like to control their research in their own space. And so during the pandemic, initially, everybody, you know, when, when the whole country was shut down, their spaces were shut down. But even at that, they kept a skeleton crew in their space, maybe two or three scientists there at all times on a rotating basis to keep their research moving. 
And as time has gone on, that headcount in their space has increased slowly. They're still by no means back to their pre-COVID occupancy levels, but um, I think a lot of life science companies see this in terms of working in the office and in their lab. I think they foresee this as a as a short-term crisis. In the longer term, things will be back to business as usual, and they'll be fully occupying their space. And uh, I think that the proof there is just the amount of space that these companies continue to commit sign 10, 15 year leases for their, they're bullish about the longer term prospects of working in an office and in a lab. Then for us, you know, we're not the scientists, so we can, we can work remote if that's how it has to be. But I think, you know, we'll, there'll be some point in the next year or two where we're back to being in the office as well. I have kind of a two part question. You mentioned, or we touched upon price per square foot to build and then what the lease up price per square foots are typically. What are the typical lease terms from a from a time frame standpoint? Are are these companies signing five-year leases, 10-year leases, 20-year leases? And then my second part to that question is do you guys hold these buildings long term? Or are you, because we you know we know a lot of uh, commercial developers who will will entitle, build, lease up, and then sell for as much money as possible. So kind of what's your firm strategy there? So on the first question, lease terms, I'd say on average, are 10 years for sizable leases. When I say sizable leases, you know, leases larger than 30, 35,000 feet, you could say that's, I'd say 10 years by the average. With that said, we've done up to 15-year leases, and we've done as short as three-year leases. So it really always, it comes down to the specific tenant and what their priorities are, what our priorities are at the time. It also depends on the lease up of that particular building. If, if a tenant is filling the last space in the building and it's kind of a small, odd space, they might want more flexibility on lease term and we'd be willing to do that to get the finished leasing up the building. So it all depends on the specifics of, the, of that tenant and that transaction, but it ranges, I'd say from the typical range would be in the five to 12 year term. And then in terms of our business model with developing and, and exiting these projects, we raise capital on a project-by-project project basis. We have a, a roster of, um, of our partners, equity partners, who we've done projects with, and we do a lot of repeat projects with. And our business model on that particular project depends on our partnership and our equity partners hold term for that fund. So we have partners that we do value bad projects with in terms of uh, shorter hold periods. And we'd be looking to get these buildings leased and then sell them upon lease up. Um, we have other partners that we will uh, develop projects with and we'll hold the project for a longer term. So it, it really just depends on our partner on the project. What do you think the smallest life si- viable life science or lab space development uh, that you could pursue is? Smallest new building, Mark? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Dan Ray, where's your commercial building? And Bill Ricca. Yeah. Think, how many square feet is it? Like 13,000. Could a 13,000 square foot commercial building in Bill Ricca be a viable lab uh, development? Well, I'll say we do like Bill Ricca as a location, so I might have to come for that and take a look. <laughs> Interesting. Well, uh, we signed a purchase and sale to sell it, so. <laughs> uh. um, Should have bought it. You know, Mark. You know, again, it, there's 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 ranges in this in the life science world of 
project sizes and, and what your business plan is, uh, incubator space could very well work in a 13,000 square foot building where companies need two benches. That's the size of the company is two scientists, right? Who've just uh, spun up their science out of Harvard or MIT and they're looking for two benches to do their science on. If you look at concepts like Lab Central or Smart Labs, these are really institutionalized incubator concepts that do a very good job at creating very small spaces for tenants. Our business model is not the smaller scale stuff like that. We would probably consider a project um, anything larger than 100,000 feet, we would consider mm-hmm. maybe maybe 75,000 feet if it was in a really compelling location. But uh, we typically have not focused on the really smaller scale uh, projects. No, that's helpful. The wheels are turning. I'm sure you can see it already. Three more wannabe life science developers uh, right here. I think we got a couple minutes left, enough time for a quick round of uh, overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. All right. Familiar with the rules? Yeah? I am. All right, I'll kick it off. Breaking Bad, Walter White. (laughs) Yes. Very appropriately rated. Yeah? Was his lab space? Did it bother you watching (laughs) that, or was that a good mixed lab? I would say we build our labs a little more robust than Walter White. (laughs) Good. What about what about what about when he graduated to under the laundromat? Oh, that's, that's true. true. That's true. As he as he gained in prominence, uh, his his spaces became more sophisticated. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I guess my question is more generic. It's like parking ratios. I don't know if that really applies, but that's a stupid one. That's not <laughs> overrated because we talk about parking. So I, I don't know, like. I don't know what a good parking ratio is. So I'm going to bend the rules a little bit. Yeah. Well, so generally speaking, if you're asking if parking ratios are underrated, appropriately rated or overrated, I think in the, in the life science world, they're underrated, especially with COVID. Now that, the, that COVID has happened, these companies, even that have spaces that are close to mass transit locations uh, in, in Cambridge or the seaport are wanting to drive right now. So buildings with, more parking have a competitive edge, at least in the short term. Waltham, Massachusetts. Appropriately rated. I've heard that's just become sort of like another hotbed of life science, like outside now that East Cambridge is full. It has. Waltham and Lexington are the two most uh, prominent life science markets uh, that are suburban markets west of Boston. Our view on it is Outside of the urban locations being Cambridge, Boston, uh, the the next best location where tenants are looking to go is to the western suburbs. And that's where we've made our living. We typically don't play in the East Cambridge market um, yeah. or in Boston. We've invested heavily in Lexington and Waltham in the past. How about high school physics uh, labs? Ooh, that, that's a tough one. Well, I didn't take physics in high school, so I, I guess I couldn't tell you what those spaces look like. But chemistry labs, overrated. Hmm. All right. Well, I think I'm out, right, Dan? Any others? <laughs> you know what? I'll throw, I'll throw another one out there. Bayer's uh, acquisition of Monsanto, that company everybody loves to hate. I would say appropriately, appropriately rated for now without knowing more about it, but Sometimes you hear these acquisitions by big pharma and they seem like odd acquisitions, but there's always a lot more to the story that the general public doesn't know about. And if Bayer's interested in, in them, then there's, I'm sure there's something there. So I'd say appropriately rated. Any other stock picks for our listeners? 
don't want to get myself into trouble in insider trading with our tenants. <laughs> when they announced the uh, the potential of the vaccine, the Pfizer news, did you see that Zoom stock just got crushed? I did. Oh, is that right? Isn't that interesting? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, They're Pfizer like, oh, went up that's 16% it. percent that day. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. So let's hope we have Zoom still for these calls. Plenty of yeah, platforms. Even if the vaccine is uh, is proved to be effective in the next couple months, it's it still will be quite a bit of time before it's able to be commercialized and distributed. We're one of our initiatives now is a biomanufacturing platform, so a dedicated programmatic joint venture to uh, construct biomanufacturing buildings. So these buildings are specifically for companies that have gotten to the stage of proving their science and they're actually manufacturing a medicine. And so we're, we're quite immersed in the biomanufacturing space right now. And the timeline to get a space built out and up and running in manufacturing medicines and then distributing those is, is a long time. A lot of these manufacturers that Pfizer or Moderna would work with to get their vaccines manufactured and distributed are already up and running, but that process is not quick by any means. Yeah, a lot of cold storage too, right? Like negative 20 degrees and huge refrigerators, freezers. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, if you have you gotten any calls from the U.S. military? <laughs> Are you at liberty yeah, to say? Yeah, but uh, yeah. Are we, we're, we're the we? military or the government? <laughs> no, the military was like spearheading the logistics behind the distribution of the vaccine. Oh. Operation Operation Warp Speed. Indeed. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, all right. This was a fun conversation. We're really glad uh, you could join us today. Thank you so much. This is very educational. Very happy to be here. Thanks, guys. Tyson, appreciate it. And thank you to everyone out there for listening, for rating, for reviewing. And uh, thank you for sharing the podcast with a friend. We will catch you on the next one. All right. Take it easy. (laughs) (laughs) Stop recording.